2: Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon on the Talkstar Radio Network and the Exxon Broadcast Network coming to you from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and worldwide, and our growing family of broadcast affiliates across Canada, the United States, South America, the Caribbean, Central America, the Pacific Rim, Australia, China, India, Africa, and across Europe. Toll-free, worldwide, 1-800-610-7035. My email address is xzone at xzoneradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, xzoneradiotv at hotmail.com. And our website, www.xzoneradiotv.com. My guest this hour is Matthew Stein. He is the author of the highly praised book, When Technology Fails, which was published by Chelsea Green in 2008 a comprehensive manual on sustainable living skills. As the owner of uh, Stein Design and Construction, he has built hurricane-resistant, energy-efficient, and environmental-friendly homes. The mechanical engineering side of his firm specializes in product design and development. Among other things, Matt has designed consumer water filtration devices, uh, photovoltaic roofing panels, medical bacteriological filters, emergency chemical drench systems, computer disk drives, and portable fiberglass buildings. Matt is a graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he majored in mechanical engineering. Matt's an active uh, mountain climber and serves as a guide and instructor for blind skiers with the Ski for Light cross-country program. And Matt currently resides with his wife Josie in the High Sierra Mountains near Lake Tahoe in California. Matt's website is www.wentechfails.com. And Matt Stein, welcome to the X-Zone.
3: Well, thanks a lot for having me on today. It's a real pleasure to be on your show.
2: That's great having you with us, Matt. Um, Technology does fail more than we'd like to admit. And um, tell me, Matt, what was your inspiration for writing your book?
3: Well, I... uh some people assume I've always been a survivalist because the survivalists really love my book. But back in 1997, I had never considered writing anything like this book, not even remotely. And uh, I'd had at that point in time a 20-year practice of prayer and meditation most every day, not not fanatical about it. And mm-hmm. I, that morning... Uh, roughly Thanksgiving of 97, I just asked for guidance and inspiration, and I got a real bomb dropped on my lap. I got way more than I bargained for that morning. What I what I got was sort of an instantaneous cosmic download. Roughly 30 pictures that made a storyboard outline for my book from start to finish were dumped into my head instantaneously, and to be honest with you, my first thought was uh, no way. You know, I just I thought this is a huge book, and I can't possibly do this. And the little voice in my and I thought also, you know, I don't know all this stuff. Mm-hmm. How, how am I going to write about this? And the little voice in my head basically said, well, nobody knows all of this stuff, and it assured me that I had the skills and talents that, should I decide to take on the the project, then I'd be able to take it to completion. And to give you a kind of a nutshell what the book is. The book is sort of the Bible for survival and emergency preparedness and self-reliance combined with green and healthy living. It's, it's, it's kind of like the handbook you want on your shelf to help you prepare and deal with various things falling apart in our world and not working so well. And and while the world is still working reasonably well, it shows you how to live healthy and green and more sustainably. You know, during during this period of time.
2: Matt, what is the pit of the stomach exercise, and how could it save my life in a crisis situation?
3: Okay, well, when you think about a crisis, mm-hmm. you know, there's say you're lost in the woods. I'm going to use an example. This is a real life example. There's a gentleman, a high-tech engineering type from the Bay Area, who was traveling through eastern Oregon with his wife and, and infant child in the car. And they got disoriented trying to take a shortcut on some back roads. They ended up on dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. No cell phone connection. They ran out of gas. Didn't have a clue which way to go. He stayed in the car for a couple of days. And then he thought, you know, obviously nobody's coming to get us. I can't just stay here and starve with my wife and kid. I'm going to you know, try and get out of here. So imagine this. You're in this situation. You don't really know what direction to go in. You're disoriented. The general
2: rule of survival says follow the rivers. So All right. What the guy we're going to have a bit of a cliffhanger here because we've got to take a two-minute break. XO Nation, our special guest is Matthew Stein, and we'll be back with Matthew on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Matt Stein is my special guest, www.whentechfails.com is his website. And before we went to the commercial break, you you were telling us about uh, this man and his family who got lost. And we were talking about uh, the pit of the stomach exercise. And uh, this guy had spent days in his car and finally realized that he had to do something about it, Matt. So what did he do? Okay,
3: so what he did was he followed the rational mind which said, you know, follow the river, and that will get you to civilization. That's sort of one of those kind of rules of survival. Now, what I'm going to tell you is that millions of years of natural selection has bred into each and every one of us the most incredible survival mechanism, that the human beings that didn't have this, they died. They died in wars, disasters, whatever. So each of us has it. The problem is, that in our high-tech Western world, we've been trained to follow the rational mind always. And sometimes the information just isn't there to make a right decision. So when that's the case, you've got to get around that rational mind. That's what the pit of the stomach is about. It's about getting in touch with your intuitive inner self, that inner compass that's been bred into us through millions of years by nature. So, okay, he follows the river. Now I'm going to tell you what he should have done. You're in a situation, Mm -hmm. you know you can't trust your rational mind when it's changing its mind every minute. If your mind says, I think I should follow the river, then five minutes later it says, no, maybe I should go down the ridge. Then maybe it says, well, maybe I should stay in the car. You know in that situation, you don't have the information to make a good decision and your mind's going all over the place. So you say, okay, time to bypass that mind. Time to do this. You take a few deep breaths. You focus your awareness on the pit of your stomach. That's the area between your belly button and your rib cage. Okay. Now, remember, you're trying to stop the thinking. So keep breathing deeply until you can feel the muscles relax between the belly button and the rib cage. Now, what you're going to do is you're going to go in pictures. You're going to bypass the thinking mind. So, what you do now is you make a picture of yourself, say hiking down the river, like in this guy's situation. Then you feel a pit of your stomach. If you feel the muscles knot up like a tight ball, that's a bad choice. Or if you feel a queasy, sick, nauseous feeling, bad decision, okay? So now you say, okay, okay, that, that's no good. So maybe you think, well, maybe I should go down the ridge. So what you do is you do some deep breathing again. If you're spiritual, ask, offer a little prayer, Jesus, Buddha, Great Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Ask for help. Keep breathing till you've relaxed. It may take a while if you're in a tense situation. Now, make a picture of option two. Maybe option two, you see yourself hiking down the ridgeline. You know, maybe you're, you'll be seen by a helicopter then. Who knows? So you picture option two. Maybe you get that knot in the stomach. It's like, oh, bad feeling again. Bad feeling of you a know, the knot, the, the queasy feeling. You know, it's a bad decision. Then say, okay, okay, well, what about staying in the car? Now, your mind is screaming at you. Yeah. saying, you can't stay in the car. You've been staying in the car for two days. Nothing's happened. You're going to die if you stay in the car. So you quiet that down, then you make that picture. You make that picture of staying in the car. Now if you feel an ah feeling, like an expanded, relaxed feeling, and even though the mind has been telling you you're going to die if you stay in the car, that pit of the stomach's gotten around the mind and told you that's the good choice. Now back to the guy. Yeah. He followed the river. It was a steep river canyon, he, he uh, got exhausted, he got drenched in cold rains, and he died of exposure. Now, his wife and kid, they were found. People traced. They didn't show up where they were supposed to be. They traced the cell phone contacts to the nearest cell towers. They got the idea of the general location. They sent people out on, you know, four-wheel drives and cars and motorcycles and, you know, four-wheelers, whatever. And they found the wife and the kid. Mm -hmm. Now, there's countless stories of survivors who will tell you that, you know, they just didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, something snapped in them. Something came in, and it was quiet, and it was calm, and it was unwavering. And that's when you know when it's this inner compass, when it doesn't change. You know, the mind can change its mind, like, constantly. But the inner compass, if it tells you what to do, it stays the same. It stays steady. Interesting. Oh, and, it, this it,
2: works. Is that like the, the inner clock we have? Yeah.
3: It's kind of like the inner clock. I mean, there's there's something within us mm-hmm. that's in touch with the whole universe, and when you ask for help and kind of say, like, I don't know what to do, please help me, it's like that generic asking sort of opens you up to that universal connection. You know, you can call it God, Spirit, Holy Spirit, you know, there's a lot of of different terms for it. Higher Self, you know, and it doesn't really matter what it's called, what matters is that it works, and what matters is getting in touch with it, and and you can practice this on your own for, for decisions. You know, my wife calls it feeling out a decision, and I'm an engineer, so I have a hard time with this one often. <laughs> I tend to run it through my head and knock against the wall a few times, and she says, you know, you could have just felt it out right from the beginning and done the right thing without all of that head-banging exercise.
2: You don't talk like the regular engineers that I've talked to in the past. Uh, not You're the only engineer that I've ever talked to who is as spiritual as you are.
3: Well, I've, uh, I've had quite a variety of spiritual experiences since I was... I had some little ones starting as a kid, you know, just minor incidents a couple of precognitive dreams, things I wrote down in diaries where I, like for instance, when I was sixteen years old I went to British Columbia for a summer of mountaineering and uh in the Canadian Rockies and I had this dream in the spring and, and this this gentleman who was kind of invited us out to go join them, he was a little older, he was a school teacher. And he said, why don't you keep a journal? And he suggested it. It's the only time in my life I kept a journal. So anyway, I had this dream, and I I woke up in the morning. and I'd seen this bearded face with a white background, and I wrote the dream down in great detail, and I felt it was going to happen that summer. And when I got off of the first mountain that we climbed in the Rogers Pass area, and quite exciting for a 16-year-old kid to be on top of these huge mountains and glaciers and we came down to the pass and we got picked up by Richard Lamb, a professor at a university in the East Coast, and he was in his white travel hall and that was the bearded face that I'd never seen before in my life, and the white background was his white four-wheel drive travel all so that was kind of like a first experience, wow. and uh, it got followed by some really knock-your-socks-off experiences in college, and uh, I almost dropped out of MIT after being initiated by a 108-year-old yogi that just about just about fried my body and you know just the experience was was so dramatic i just i just couldn't believe it you know i just sat there and laughed for about an hour afterwards uh, i'd i'd felt at one point like if i stretched out my hand that lightning bolts would come out of my fingers and that and that my body would explode with the energy running through me and spread my guts all over the wall i mean it was not one of these like little experiences where you think gee maybe something's happening it was a knock your socks off destroy your whole vision your whole belief systems knocked out from underneath you kind of experience.
2: How did that experience change your life?
3: Well, it shifted my model of reality. You know, Up until that point, I kind of operated my life from a very scientific Western viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, in spite of a few experiences like the precognitive dream and a few other things I haven't got time for, I really believed that The whole universe was like a big soup. Uh, They could all be described in terms of laws of physics and chemistry and action and reaction, like Newton's laws. And and then when I got zapped by this yogi, and I saw people who were healed of you know paralysis and terminal cancers, and he touched them on the head, and they're filled with light and energy, and these cancers go away and their paralysis heals up. I mean, I had a friend who had been a gymnastic champion in high school and she leapt off the uh and she'd broken her back that had ended her like career towards the olympics with a, a back-breaking experience literally oh, and it had healed but it stopped her career as a you know world-class gymnast yeah. and she jumped off a couch one day and her back re-broke, and then she went in the hospital and she was paralyzed and the doctors thought that maybe you know she'd never regain use of her legs again and the yogi came and visited her in the hospital and uh he ran energy to her and a week later she walked out of the hospital so a broken back and potentially permanent paralysis was fully healed within a week's period of time you know just just something that the doctors couldn't believe
2: what did so, the doctors say how did they try to explain it
3: <laughs> well you know they use funny terms like spontaneous remission oh and anomalies yeah. and you know stuff like that they they kind of give them a term and it's like well we don't really know what what's going on here? And and, and so they just sort of give it a term and turn their back and walk away. And I mean, I even had an experience when uh, I had a friend in seventh grade who came, I remember coming to class and she'd break down crying in class and all this pain and agony. And her older brother was an Olympic hopeful and she was following his footsteps, was a very promising young athlete. And after this happened a few times, she was gone for a few months. We didn't know what was going on. And, and then she showed up in class in a wheelchair with full-length casts her legs. Oh, well, nice. those, those, you know, she was walking. I mean, she wouldn't walk for years. And then about five years later, she got well enough that she could walk with braces, you know, in and, and a stiff-leg walk. Mm-hmm. With no movement in her knees and full-length braces and a cane. Now, I ended up doing some taking a class in college called silver mind control and you do some remote health readings for people and this is sort of like a, the big experience before the yogi and uh, and you see problems in their body and then when you're done with that you kind of fix them up in your head you know it's it, you don't leave them broken you sort of see them as being whole and healed and i hadn't been talking to my friend barb for for months you know since i'd gone off to mit it was my freshman year at mit and I was doing this meditation after the class, and every day, and just kind of as something to do, I would visualize her as riding her bicycle and skiing, you know. And because I couldn't leave her in her broken state of her body, which was the last time I'd seen her, and I no contact with me for these, you know, four months of the fall semester at MIT. And I get home to Burlington, and I call her up because I wanted to tell tell her about this experience in this class, and and this lady who'd done health readings for her and seen her, her physical problems, and before I even had a chance to tell her anything, first thing she said was, "Matt, my legs have gotten so much better. I've been riding my bicycle lately, and last week I went skiing for the first time in seven years. And, you know, i just about, you know, what to a brick. I mean, it just—I I didn't believe any of this could possibly be true. i have just been seeing her doing this as something to do in my meditations. I didn't Matt, stand by. We've got to, to do, do another. Anything.
2: We've got to do another cliffhanger, Matt." Matt Stein is our special guest Nation. His website is www.whentechfails.com. I'll be back with Matt on the other side of this break with the news as the Exxon continues from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.
0: We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast, but the rest of us sleep in.
2: Special guest, XO Nation, Matt, before we went to the news break uh, a little while ago, you were telling us about this this young lady who you had been sending, I would imagine, positive feelings about positive vibes, trying to um, ra- uh, visualize her getting better, who was in uh, the last time you saw her in full leg cast, and then she was in, in braces, and she walked without the uh, the movement of her knees when she did walk and you spoke to her seven years later and she was telling you that she was getting stronger she was riding her bike and she had gone skiing for the very first time
3: well the seven years was the time span from when she'd first been crippled and she'd gone to the Boston Children's Hospital and they gave it a name they thought they'd seen it three times They weren't quite sure what it was, but they thought it was some, you know, I don't remember the name of the disease, but something extremely rare. Then all the way through high school, for the next five years, or six years, we seven years, actually, we'd been very close friends. And her legs had gotten slightly better to where she wasn't wheelchair-bound, but she walked with full-length braces and a cane. So then I went away to school at MIT. This is the summer of 1974, And at the fall of 74, I went away to MIT for my freshman year in engineering school. And that's when I did the Silver Mind Control uh, workshop or seminar. And and they taught you sort of a basic meditative technique and some visualization stuff. And their meditation was an active meditation. So each day when I did it, and this is, I didn't take the seminar until, what, November of 1974. So then I come home about six weeks later, Christmas time, mm-hmm. and I in the six-week period between when I took the workshop and went home, just as something to do oh, with I my see. daily oh. meditation, I've been visualizing her riding her bicycle and skiing. And the first thing she says on the phone is, Matt, my legs have gotten so much better. I've been riding my bicycle, and I even went skiing for the first time in seven years last week. So it just blew my mind, because I honestly... I, you couldn't call it faith healing because I had no faith in the process whatsoever. It's just kind of something I was doing because it was an active meditation. I didn't know what else to visualize, so that's what I visualized.
2: You were telling me before we went on air that uh, you had an experience in a field or in a meadow, a vision. Yeah. Would you like to share that with us?
3: Yeah, Two two years after... I'd, gotten, I'd been initiated by the yogi in 1977 in the kind of mind-blowing experience, and two years later, I'd graduated from MIT in the, in the intern period, and I became a, a, sort of a junior mechanical engineer at Hewlett-Packard in Palo Alto, California. And during this period of time it was it was sort of a spiritual aesthetic period of time. I wasn't doing much socially i would my life consisted of working and working out, and I was doing a lot of prayer and fasting and meditation. So one day, during my lunch hour, I was running up in the hills above Stanford University. I would do a lot of long distance running, like you know ten to eighteen miles kind of runs. And I was running up by uh, the Stanford telescope off 280, and, and uh, I caught a bee between my fingers and it stung me. And as a child, I'd, I'd had a real severe reaction to bee stings, a lot of pain, a lot of swelling. So i have been doing this visualization stuff, so I kind of rolled my eyeballs into my forehead and visualized bursting the toxins, and instantly the pain of the bee sting was gone. But the next thing that happened, and I'll, I'll just describe it as closely as I can – is a, it felt like a spinning vortex showed up above my head, and my spirit kind of went, you know, it, it like spun up through the vortex, and all of a sudden, I'm in the midst of a vision, and in the vision, I'm in a meadow, and in the vision, I look more like Moses. I mean, I don't look like Moses in this life. <laughs> it was like the, the, you know, the Moses and the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. I have long, white hair, and and a big white robe on me, and I have Roman-style sandals that with the thong that lashes up your your uh, your calves, mm-hmm. and I have two of my sort of spiritual disciples or students tagging along behind me, and in the vision, I'm in a beautiful green meadow, and I look ahead, and the Christ is in the meadow. And he turns towards me, and stretches out his hand, and it's he's he's just totally unconditional radiant love like no judgment no anger just just joy and love is all that's coming off of him and he stretches out his hand and says I'm glad you've come I've been waiting for you now I'm sure that there's a lot more that went on but I have no recollection of it because when I came back through that spinning vortex into conscious awareness of my body my body had run up this small mountain across the top and back down the other side again, about a three-mile distance with a very large, you know, 600-foot elevation climb. And when I'm back in the awareness of my body, I'm just flying down the road. I'm supercharged. It's just like when I'd been initiated by the yogi. I felt like I was on fire, you know, and in the Bible... It says, uh, they ask John the Baptist, they say, um, are you him? Are you the Christ? And he says, no, I, you know, I baptize with water. The one comes after me who baptizes with fire. So here I am, flying down the road, baptized with fire. I feel like there's a million volts traveling through me. There's tears streaming down my cheek. My eyes are kind of balled up into my forehead. And I fly back to Stanford at a sub-four-minute mile for the next mile. And normally, I mean, I was a good runner in high school, and I, I used to run 60-second quarters, so I know what the pace of a four-minute mile is, but I couldn't normally keep it up for a whole mile, and on that day, I ran it at, at a sub-four-minute mile for the mile back to Stanford, and, you know, it it was just, it was another life-changing experience, and I've, I've had several several in my life, and, and probably the more recent one was was actually when uh, when I received the the storyboard outline for the book in my head. So probably the the three big ones in my life was the yogi zapping me, and then the, the vision being yanked out of my body for Vision with Jesus, and and then the last one, 20 years later, was the yeah. uh, being gifted with the outline for my book in, in an instantaneous flash. Now, you know, it was tough. I mean, here I am, a Jewish kid from Burlington, Vermont, and uh, I, I really kept quiet about this. I mean, it's been 30 years, and Publicly, I, I've only spoken now on a couple of small radio shows that are spiritually based, and you know, what do you do? You go back home and say, "Gee, Mom and Dad, I, I saw Jesus on my lunch hour today." It's like, no, they're going to lock you up in the nut house, and you know. <laughs> so it was, it was. It took me a long time to come to grips with it, and it was actually through hypnotherapy sessions with my wife, who in the, around 1990 became trained as a hypnotherapist, that I finally sort of made sense out of all this and, and started to understand, why me? I mean, yeah. you know, as, as, a, as a young engineer, I thought, why me? You know, Jewish kid from Burlington, Vermont, seeing Jesus on your lunch hour. I mean, why me? Now, now I understand, but it, it took... it. Did, I didn't understand it until the 1990s when I used hypnotherapy to actually figure out why me. Then, then it became clear.
2: What other uses does hypnotherapy have in a person's life?
3: Well, hypnotherapy... Uh, for me has been quite valuable for dealing with sort of those knee-jerk reactions that many of us have, where there's there's way, when you react irrationally, you know, certain things push your buttons, and it seems like, you know, talk therapy or whatever just can't seem to heal that or get behind mm-hmm. that. And, and in hypnotherapy, it's like you have a direct access to the soul, so you can go to the root of an issue. And regardless of your belief systems you know people when they go to the root of their issues often end up seeing other lifetimes in other places and you may be a fundamentalist christian and believe that past lives are something that are evil and of the devil and totally non-existent and yet go into hypnotherapy and dealing with a root issue and all of a sudden you see yourself you know drowning in a ship in the in crossing the ocean in the 1700s or you know being tortured in some weird place in the third world or, you know, some kind of traumatic route to, to your issue. Uh, for instance, let me give you an example. Okay. And this example is written down in the healing chapter of my book, When Technology Fails. And there was a client of my wife's who had crippling arthritis in her knees, and she was in her 40s, you know, early 40s. She was roughly 40 years old, and she had to sit in her bed and massage her knees for 10 minutes in the morning before she could get out of bed and walk to the bathroom. I mean, that's really bad. And so my wife did some work with her on this issue, and it's like going back to the root of the issue, and this woman ended up seeing herself as a Native American warrior on a battlefield. And in this particular battle, it was Indian against Indian. It wasn't cowboys and Indian. It was Native American of one tribe against some other tribe. And in this battle, the warrior had been entrusted with her slash his, you know, it was a male warrior in that life, female Mm -hmm. person in this life. So his younger brother was entrusted under his care. He was supposed to make sure the younger brother survived the battle and was okay. So it goes into battle and the younger brother is engaged in battle and with somebody, and he's engaged with somebody else, and he's He's you know in a life and death struggle of his own, and so he's not able to assist his younger brother and his younger brother is killed. So when the battle is over, the older brother is alive and quote victorious, but he feels like such a failure because he he failed to save the younger brother's life that he would have been entrusted to his care. So he takes his battle axe, and in his anguish over his failure of saving his younger brother's life, he kneecaps himself in both knees. So he, okay. he takes a battle axe and, and slams it down onto both of his own knees and, and shatters his kneecaps. So for the rest of that life, every single step is like this painful reminder of his failure to save the younger brother's life. Now, in the Hindu tradition, they call this the samskara. It's like a scar, an etheric scar on your being, on your soul, from some traumatic experience. And so it was was such a heavy mark on the soul that he wasn't able to dissolve it in the in-between lifetime period. So in this life, it manifested as crippling arthritis in the knees. So from seeing it in hypnotherapy from a soul experience level and letting go and releasing it, finally clearing it out of the energy field then her knees were finally able to heal and come back to a significant degree. When, when no medicines and therapies or anything physical had managed to do that, the hypnotherapy was able to work where the regular physical treatments had failed. So that, that gives you some idea. I mean, it, it can be good for programming, for smoking, weight loss, all that, but the deeper hypnotherapy is more effective than simple programming because not only do they have the programming tools mm-hmm. but they also have the ability to go to the root of the issue and to release it on a soul level so you can like really be done with it.
2: What's the difference between hypnotherapy and, and neuro-linguistic programming? programming?
3: Well, neuro-linguistic programming is very valuable and it can be something that's very effective, and many hypnotherapists know neurolinguistic programming. But neuro linguistic programming is sort of saying that you get yourself into a state, mm-hmm. and you program keys in. You sort of associate a state of mind with an action, and you program keys in. And it's a way of very effectively changing behavior patterns, and a way of effectively, like, for instance, uh, oh, who's the guy that... Tony, Tony Robbins said, Anthony Robbins was a, is a master of neuro-linguistic programming, and he became a black belt after a single year of, of working in, a, in martial arts, and he's very effective at that. But neuro-linguistic programming, so for instance, there are therapists who are aware of neuro-linguistic programming that will say the reason talk therapy often fails Mm -hmm. is if you understand neuro-linguistic programming, you get people start talking about their anger and their relationship and this and that. And by neuro-linguistic programming, when you understand that, it's like, oh, my God, the talk therapist is actually reinforcing the programming for all the negative, yucky feelings and patterns in the relationship. Instead of clearing them, typical talk therapy is actually using the principles of neuro-linguistic programming to program them in and strengthen the things you're actually trying to get rid of so they're different in hypnotherapy you can use neuro-linguistic programming tools mm-hmm. you can which is kind of like the more programming aspects of hypnotherapy, right. but you can also use it to bypass that thinking mind that I was talking about with the pit of the stomach, so you can actually access the greater wisdom of the soul, the inner being, and bypass that thinking mind to get to the root. So your mind may think, well, I'm this way because my mama did this, and my daddy did that, in my right. childhood, and that's why I'm all messed up, but then when you go in hypnotherapy with a good hypnotherapist who can go really deep, then you basically turn that mind off and say okay where did it really come from and sure maybe your mama did this and your daddy did that but like in my case I had an extremely dark mother that had a lot of emotional problems but from a soul perspective I saw that I'd set myself up that I was a very powerful kind of arrogant being in other lifetimes and places and I needed to learn more compassion for others
2: Matthew, so
3: I set myself up for, for stuff.
2: Matthew, we have to take our final break. I want to thank you so much for coming on and for sharing these these experiences with us. We'll have to have you back on because, you know, we still have to talk about when technology fails.
3: I know, it's an incredible book, and it was given to me for a reason. So, yes, we'll definitely have to be back on.
2: All right, Matthew, please stand by. You and I will be back on the other side of this break as the X-Zone wraps up for this week here in the X-Zone from our studios and. Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away, exonation We'll be right back.
0: We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you.
2: Welcome back, everyone. I'd like to take this opportunity of thanking all our guests tonight, James Goy Jr. and I talked in hour number one, Tanya Diamond, Hour Number Two, jo- Dr. Joanne Bishop in Hour Number Three, and my guest this hour, Matt Stein. His website is www.wentechfails.com. That's www.wentechfails.com. First of all, Matt, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight here in the uh, in the Zone and you see, I believe in in synchronicity. I believe that the universe has its own destiny for us. And even though you and I started talking about when technology fails, somebody upstairs or wherever said, no, we'd want you guys to talk about his experiences so that he can share that there is more to this life than what you guys had planned. So you see, this is what I was telling you about off-air, my uh, Matt, is that... Things happen here on it on their own. So, thanks very much for sharing with us tonight here in the Exxon.
3: Well, you're welcome, and you know it's—I don't get to share stories like this very often because uh, you know I don't want to be called a lunatic, and <laughs> and most shows just aren't interested. it's too often the fringe, so I really get a charge out of it, and and anytime I do share the stories like the G, with Jesus yes. and the yogi and then I'm, I feel very spiritually and emotionally and energetically charged up afterwards. It's, it's a real blessing for me to be able to share this with people.
2: See, I, I believe, Matt, that we're all connected. That we're all connected through what some people may want to call the life force, the universal force, God. And when we share the experiences that relate to this connectedness, we win. We're doing what we're supposed to do. We're, you know, people who suppress it end up being very negative, very mean, very sad people. But when you share it, like you said, you get that tingly feeling all
1: over.
3: I agree. And, and you know what? I've done some work. We don't have time to talk it now about it now, but in another time where we've actually been able to connect with, call them your spirit guides mm-hmm. or any guides, and have conversations with them. and And it turns out, according to them, that these synchronicities that are common into the human experience that everyone has experienced, that that's like the guides in the interplane work my guides working with your guides, trying to tug at our ear and pull at our heartstrings and make things happen or, or you know encourage us to allow things to happen. And, and when you allow it, that's when the synchronicity happens in your life. and it's, it's common to everyone in the human experience, I believe.
2: Matt, thank you very much for joining us and for taking time out of your busy day to uh, share your experiences here with us tonight in the X-Zone. And we look forward to having you back on in the near future.
3: It's such a pleasure. i like to leave people with my motto, and even though we didn't talk about the book much, but my motto is I ask everyone to do your best to change the world and do your best to be ready for the changes in the world. And it's really been a pleasure being on your show tonight.
2: Thank you very much, sir. Matt, stein has been my guest this hour when techfails.com well that's it for this week everyone i'll be back monday night have a great weekend thank you for allowing us to be part of your day your night no matter where you are on this great big planet of ours and always remember to keep your eyes to the sky and your heart to the light good night everyone have a great safe weekend